if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We continue walking through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a, um, some friends of the meters and some of our friends, actually a former um, seminary professor, visiting with us. Some of you may have met them. He, asked me, he came in and asked me what I was preaching on, and I told him the Sermon on the Mount, and he made a statement that kind of struck me. and said, you know, a, a pastor could make a career preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I promise you I'm not trying to do that. Um, however, I started to understand his comments. This is such a rich passage. and In fact, if, I was thinking this week if I could pick three, three uh, chapters or if or someone told me you can only have three chapters of the Bible, which ones would those be? It's very possible it would be these three chapters in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. He gives us really everything we need for life and godliness. Um, it was Jesus' direct instructions to his disciples. It's, it is foundational to the Christian life, but yet comprehensive of everything in the Christian life. It explains the kingdom of heaven, how to get in it, and how to live in it. It is both convicting and encouraging. And we have finished the introduction of the sermon, uh, verses 3 through 16, known as uh, the Beatitudes. And Jesus begins by telling us who we are and, and who we are becoming. He doesn't begin with what we are to do, but he begins with, with who Christ has, who God has made us. God has made us part of a group of people he calls blessed, the ones who are uh, happy, the ones who live a flourishing spiritual life, the ones who are to be envied, the ones who are living countercultural to pretty much everything in our society. He's going to then end um, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verses 13 through 27, and he's going to list several contrasts. And the need to choose one of two things, uh, one of two gates, uh, one of two pathways, the narrow and the wide pathway, one of two trees, one of two claims, uh, one of two foundations on which to build our life. And now today we come to the body of, of Christ's sermon, beginning in uh, chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through uh, chapter 7, verse 12. And today we're, we're going to begin with uh, what may be his thesis of his sermon. You know, we, we looked at sermons usually have an introduction and then a thesis, what the, what the pastor really wants to say, and then the body and then the conclusion. And so today is kind of the thesis, uh, really, of, of Jesus' Uh, sermon. Um, I, I was hoping to get through 17 through 20 today, but um, have decided that we're going to look at verses 17 and 18 today. But the body really um, talks about the law and the prophets, which is a common way to refer to the Old Testament. 
he talks about the, the Old Testament. And just like with uh, the introduction, uh, when the introduction was kind of um, boxed in between verse 3, the kingdom of heaven, and verse 10, the kingdom of heaven, so that he's, he is describing the characteristics of those who are in the king of, kingdom of heaven, the body is uh, wrapped between, or we could say the, 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 two, the two pieces of bread that the, the meat is between. We see in verse 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. And we also see uh, in chapter 7, verse 12, the end of the body says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus is, is making sure that we, we understand as we come to this part of, of his sermon that everything he says is connected to the Old Testament. It's connected to the scripture, the Bible that he had, that they had at the time. So today if we look at uh, Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20, we could call it the thesis of, of Jesus' sermon. Uh, this is one of the um, most difficult passages in, in all of Scripture. It's caused a lot of debate. It's also one of the most important texts in the Bible because it sheds light on, on really two critical things. First of all, the, uh, what he calls the exceeding righteousness that uh, gets you into the kingdom in verse 20. He's going to say that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not get into the, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about there? And, and secondly, um, the foundation of that, uh, that that is built on, that is the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the relationship of, of the law and the gospel. Uh, what is the role of the law in the life of a believer? We could spend a month of Sundays just, just talking about that particular topic, uh, but we won't. We'll spend a couple of weeks uh, on these four verses. When you start studying these four verses, you, you begin to wrestle with um, how to explain these verses. And... Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, difficult passage to deal with, and I wrestled with that this week. Uh, though, there are those who are much more educated than, than I who struggle with this text. Uh, Friday morning, I woke up early, and, and I've told you before, when I, when, when I wake up, lots of times, uh, first thought in my mind is about the text that I've been in for that week, and, and I woke up early. Uh, Friday morning, and that was on my mind, and I was thinking, so how am I going to do this? And, and the, the KISS principle just kept coming into my mind, and I don't know if you know what the KISS principle is, K-I-S-S, some of you do, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> and so I thought, that's the best way to approach this text, is to keep it simple, stupid, you know, why did Jesus say the things that he says and to this particular audience, and how did it land on them? He's going to say th some things that are, are going to shock these people, and how did it land on them, and what do we need to take from it ourselves? 
And so let's look at um, Matthew chapter 5. Let me read verses 17 through 20 for us, and then we'll, we'll jump in um, and do the best we can with it. I don't want to take uh, away from the Lord's table on time. Actually, the application of what we're going to talk about comes from the Lord's table this morning. So um, let's read those verses, verses, beginning of verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, the, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Convicting uh, passage, and, and um, the simplest way I can uh, talk about this is that it, it, it divides easily into two parts, verse 17 and 18 and verses uh, 19 uh, and 20. Verse 17 and 18 talks about really Christ's relationship to the law. He did not come to abolish but fulfill, and he explains that in verse 18. Then, then there's a therefore. Therefore, in verse 19, verses 19 and 20 talks about a Christ follower's relationship to the law. In other words, how Jesus views the law has direct implications on how we relate to the law and how we live. If we summarize Jesus' thesis, uh, which would have been shocking for this audience, it goes something like this. If your life doesn't show a deeper understanding of Scripture than the religious leaders, you will certainly not get in the kingdom of heaven. That is a shocking statement. If your righteousness, if your understanding of Scripture doesn't go deeper than the seminary professors and the pastors and the elders, you will surely not get into the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean by that? Both the disciples and the religious leaders are hearing these words, and he says that you need an exceeding righteousness, a righteousness that goes deep and is not, not surface. You need a, a righteousness that is internal and not external. You need a righteousness that, is, that shows poverty of spirit and not the pride of life. You need a righteousness that's not looking for approval of people, but approval of God. These words lead into verses 21 through 48 of chapter 5, where Jesus is going to say several times, you have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say. You have heard it said, um, you have heard it said uh, that you should not swear falsely, um, but I say, he's going to say, you have heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say. 
He's going to explain what he, what he uh, says the law says, how he interprets the law, how, how we are to live. And that's to be a righteousness that is deeper and more internal and from the heart than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The law and the prophets, the scripture, the Old Testament, it is the story of Christ. Christ affirms the authority of the law and prophets. And, and therefore, uh, looking to Jesus for life means following Jesus. And through following Jesus, following the law. So when we obey Christ's teachings... We obey the law. This is because the law is fulfilled in Jesus. So let's look at those two things. First of all, Christ and the law. Jesus is the story of the Old Testament. You know, there are two ways to read the Bible. You can read the Bible and you can read the stories of the Bible and you can say, uh, what does that mean for me? What is the moral teaching of of this story. You could read the story of David and Goliath and say, uh, is that really a story of how I defeat the giants in my life? Is that really a story of how I need to have more confidence to face the trials of life? Or you could read it in light of the story of the Bible, in light of the story of redemptive salvation in Christ. And you could read that story that this is the work of God in a servant of God who trusts in God. And this is about God, and this is about God's story of Christ, and bringing Christ through the Old Testament to the cross. This is about fulfilling the law. He begins with this, out of nowhere. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Abolish, mean to, to, to annul, to, to blow up, to uh, destroy. I did not come to... Um, invalidate something that is already in force. I did not come to abolish the law. could be translated to do away with. I did not come to do away with the law. And that statement tells us that, that the relationship of the law to Christ is not that Jesus came to do away with it. Now, why did Jesus say those words? Well, you can read a lot of uh, commentators, and there may be some truth in this, that um, there were rumors going around, or, or perhaps Christ had already um, disobeyed the, the law of the Sabbath, and, and perhaps um, he, his teaching of, of grace seemed to be against the law, and, and that, may, that may very well be true. But I think, um, at least in my uh, from my perspective, that Jesus is doing something different than that. Um, I think that Jesus is preparing them for what he is about to say. Not necessarily something he's already done or said, though that is possible, but I think he's preparing them for what, he, what is coming. That he needs to show 
that he's not a revolutionary, that he's not discarding the scriptures. He has not come to discard the scriptures. He has come to do something else, to fulfill them. Because it appears if you look at Matthew 1, 1 through uh, 4 that Jesus has not suggested that there's anything about the uh, Mosaic law or the prophets that he wishes to set aside, set aside or, or dispute. Uh, in fact, it, it talks about um, the genealogy of Jesus and talks about the birth of Jesus. And in chapter 1 it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. In chapter 2, the visit from the wise men, the wise men talking to to Herod about where the Christ child would be born. And and verse 5, they said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. The prophets talk about Christ. In in chapter 3, verse 2 says, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. Talking about John the Baptist. So he has not done anything in the first four verses to to make us think that he's trying to correct a misperception of who he is at this point, but he is preparing them. As you read chapters 1 through 4, there there isn't anything to cause you to think that Jesus is or, or placing a low value on Scripture either. Jesus is actually going to raise the value of Scripture. But whatever he's saying, he is framing the argument. You know, we do this too, don't we? You know, um, honey, don't think I don't like this stew. <laughs> One thing she cannot conclude is I don't like this stew. But maybe if there's a little more chili pepper in it, it would be even better. And Jesus is saying, don't think, you, you cannot conclude that I am putting a low value on Scripture. You cannot conclude that because I did not come to abolish it or do away with it. But what then? I came to fulfill it. And here lies the tension. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, the the Old Testament? Some have suggested that, um, and, and there's some truth in this, that he came to give perfect obedience to them. He came to fulfill them and obey them completely. That is, his mission was to affirm all the predictions of the Old Testament and fulfill all the laws and show a perfect righteousness, that he's, he's laying the ground for an imputed righteousness that we receive from Christ. And we would say, that's absolutely true. We do receive and imputed righteousness. But to this point, Paul is not, not on the scene. So I asked the question, did they, did they actually grasp that? Was Jesus laying the groundwork? And I believe he, he was in, 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 in some sense doing that. But is that the immediate uh, implication of what he wants them to understand? I think, I think there's something else here. Some say he has come to explain them and explain them fully.
fully, to fill them out. Well, there could be, a, probably use another word for that, but there is truth in that as well. That Christ is going to, in chapter 5, he's going to, to fill out uh, what these mean. He's going to give his, his take on these things. That fulfill relates to, the, to um, something that, that the, the scribes and Pharisees lost, perhaps was there at the beginning of the law and the prophets. They had lost that. And Jesus is going to say, this is what they really mean. There's truth in that as well. And he does that. But I think at this particular point, there's something else that he's doing. He's going to say, I came to fulfill. And fulfill, I think, relates to the goal of the Old Testament. The realization of the law and the predictions of the prophets. If we look at Matthew, Jesus is going to say, these, these talk about me. And I am here now, and I am here to fulfill everything they said, not only in chapters 1 through 4 that we saw, but you can if chapter 8, verse, verse 16. Chapter 8, verse 16 says this, That evening they brought him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits by, with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus saying, this is what the Old Testament says about me. In chapter 9, verse 13, he says something uh, very similar. Uh, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. A quote from the Old Testament. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. In chapter, um, chapter 11, verse 10, he says this, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is saying, and Matthew is confirming, that Jesus came to fulfill, and in Matthew it means, to, it means that history has come to its fullest fulfillment in Christ. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to show you that those, that law talks about me. That is, I fulfill the, the salvation of the Old Testament. Jerry read for us, Abraham was saved by, by faith, not by the law. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of redemptive history. I fulfill all the theology of Scripture. I fulfill all the morality of the Old Testament. What the law and the prophets anticipated, what they predicted, uh, what they perhaps preliminarily taught is Jesus. Why is that important? Because Jeremiah chapter 31 says this. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the, we could put Mosaic covenant in there that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them and by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, 
Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write in, in it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is a messianic claim by Jesus. He's saying, I have come to fulfill everything in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, when you read the law and the prophets, you're reading my story. It is a story about me. You see, Scripture is not a story of 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 healing our marriage. It's about knowing Christ. And when we know Christ, our marriage does quite well. Yesterday at the um, men's, men's retreat, at, at the very end, they give out some prizes for war shooters and those kinds of things. Um, but the, the, the guy who was, who was leading that made, a, made a, a statement that struck me. And he said, you know, when you get home, uh, you know, we're giving out prizes here. Make sure you thank your wives for letting you come and make sure you thank your wives for taking care of the kids and maybe give them a gift. And he says, if you really want to give them a gift, let them see you following Jesus. Because if they see you following Jesus, your marriage is going to be okay. You see, Scripture is not about moral fables. It's not an Aesop's fables, although there are things we learn. But Scripture is about Christ, Christ being our hope. We sing of him being our hope in life and death. And he's saying, this is a story about me. And he goes on in, uh, in John. He says this in a number of places. But John chapter 5, verse 39, 39 and 40. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think in, that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures testify to Christ in Luke chapter uh, 24, verses 44 and 45. He says this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understanding the scriptures. In that same, in that same chapter, chapter 24, in verse 25, he says this, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. You see, this is a story of Jesus. In Genesis, he's the seed of Abraham. Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Deuteronomy, he's the promised prophet. Ruth, he's the kinsman, redeemer. Samuel, he's the 
Lord of hosts, the seed of David. First Kings, he's the Prince of Peace. Job, he's a Redeemer. Psalms, he's the Son of God. Isaiah, he's a sacrificial son. Jeremiah, he's a Lord of righteousness. Amos, he's the coming judge. Zephaniah, he's a mighty God. Haggai, he's the desire of nations. Malachi, he's a son of righteousness. The truth is that Jesus is the theme of the entire Bible. It's captured in a, an anonymous poem. The poem's called, I Find My Lord in the Book, and it's a short poem. It goes like this. I find my Lord in the Bible wherever I chance to look. He is the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He at the book's beginning gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter bearing the brunt of the storm. The burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God. The ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window, and the serpent lifted high, the smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook, the face of my Lord I discover whenever I open the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior, virgin born. He is the son of David, whom men rejected with scorn, his garments of grace and beauty, the stately Aaron deck. Yet he is the priest forever, for he is Melchizedek, Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw, light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw, bridegroom coming at midnight, for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. Do you know Jesus? He can be found in the book. The Bible must be central to everything that we do if Providence Church is going to be established as a gospel church. If you read the Bible without Jesus, without Jesus being the center of the Bible, the center of the story, you misunderstand Scripture. He embodied it. He advanced it. He completed it. Amen. He is the one who died for us and for us fulfilled scripture. We come today to um, celebrate that fulfillment. And when we come to the cross, Christ shows us the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Salvation is the intended result of, of the gospel story of Jesus. And that completes the story of Israel in the Old Testament. On the cross, Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He completely does away with it. If we read the book of Exodus, uh, we understand that sin is bad. And we understand that someone can die for sin. 
And we understand, we call that the substitutionary atonement. And during the sacrifice in the Old Testament, there was a priest there. And you could come before God with your sacrifice before a holy God because of the, the horribleness of your sin by the mercy of that holy God. And if we read those, uh, the laws that are listed in, in um, the book of Leviticus, the sacrifice was killed by the sinner. The priest was there, and the priest sprinkled the blood on the altar. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood on the cross because of the sin of sinners. He fulfilled that requirement of the Old Testament for us. One sacrifice for all time. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that. And one reason that we do not have an altar in our church and we don't call this an altar and uh, we, don't, we don't do that is because the altar is the cross. Never to be repeated again. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, otherwise, would, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world... He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I think we could say a, a crucified body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, but I have come to do your will. <laughs> 